You're listening to the official podcast of Asbury University, produced by students with God-honoring conversations that inform, edify, and encourage. This is Asbury. We explore culture and current topics through a Christian worldview, promoting a well-balanced life, and we empower our community to belong, become, and be set apart. I'm your host, Abby Lobb. Welcome to This is Asbury. Welcome to the studio today. I have some really special guests, one of whom is an Asbury graduate, Anna Lauren Jacobs and Deanna Lynn from Refuge for Women in Lexington. Welcome, ladies. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you for being here. Can you tell me what your roles are at Refuge and how long you've been there? Sure. My name is Deanna Lynn. I am the executive director of Refuge for Women. I have actually been a part of Refuge for Women since I went through the program in 2011, graduated in 2012, and then went on to Asbury. Asbury Seminary and graduated from there as well. So big fan of Wilmore. And Anna Lauren. My name is Anna Lauren Jacobs, and I get to serve as the Community Engagement Coordinator for Refuge for Women Kentucky. And I've been on staff actually for about a year now, but I've been volunteering for a few years. And I'm actually a 22 Asbury alum, so great to be back here in Miller. What are you doing now? I know you went out to law school, so you're you're still doing that. I think people made a lot of jokes when I was a kid that I would be (laughs) in school until I'm 30. Um, I don't think I'm going to quite make it that far, but at least 25. So after Asbury, I immediately went into UK Rosenberg College of Law. I'm halfway through my law degree. I'm really excited about that. And then working with Refuge has just been kind of an unexpected highlight, um, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's really, really cool to have the seat, not only from my experience and degree at Asbury, learning about the ministry component of all of that, but also sitting in the legal seat, seeing the theory and the policy and the practice behind what our anti-trafficking framework looks like, but then also getting to serve survivors and getting to raise awareness. So it is really actually a really comprehensive the view that I'm super, super grateful for. What is your degree in from Asbury? My degree is in English, equine science, and intercultural studies. So I studied maybe a little bit of everything, but I actually just really kept falling in love with everything Asbury had to offer, yes. so I couldn't pick. <laughs> I can be a bit indecisive. It's January, so that means it's Human Trafficking Prevention Month, which I believe was a kind of newly designated month, you know, maybe in the last 10 years or so. Deanna, can you talk a little bit about what that means? What is Human Trafficking Prevention Month, and why is it so important? It's important because education is key. I think we have a lot of movies out there that have sensationalized what trafficking is. And it's not to say that that, those cases don't happen. It's just not 90% of the cases. Over the years, I've had a lot of people like watch a movie or or become aware of human trafficking in its most dramatic sense. And they want to know where to start. And they, they just don't have any education on what it looks like in their own neighborhood. And honestly, like one of the first things I tell them is let's start by not watching pornography in your house. Let's not like go all the way to another country and try to like rescue a kidnapped kid like what if you stopped exploiting people in your own home and your own media choices because that's feeding the industry it's feeding the industry and what people don't realize is that a lot of the same tactics are used by pimps producers predators traffickers they're they're coercing you by offering a better life they're trying to manipulate you by talking about the debt that you have they're boyfriending you Um, no one's going to love you like i'm going to love you and it's all the same tactics and so people will choose certain socially acceptable forms of selling sex, thinking that it's ethical and it's by choice. And so I actually ended up writing a book on, you know, what it looked like when I thought selling sex 
was my best option in life. And this difference between like, well, she's there by choice, so let's go to the strip clubs and watch pornography, um, but let's not engage in human trafficking. And we're here to like help everybody become aware of what that actually looks like out here, even in Kentucky. So you have human trafficking, which can encompass a huge number of things. And then more specifically, you have sex trafficking, which is what Refuge for Women is designed to help women escape. Let's dig into that a little bit. You touched on this a little bit. What are some of the misconceptions about trafficking, specifically sex trafficking? Because when you think of Lexington, Kentucky, you know, you just don't think about sex trafficking being an issue. Explain why that is an issue anywhere right here in Kentucky, right here in Wilmore, and what Refuge does to help come alongside women in that industry. So like Deanna said, there's a really, really common misconception that human trafficking is a stranger pulling up in a white van. There's kind of become this delineation between what is acceptable forms of sex for sale and what would actually be classified as exploitation, when in reality, it's all coercive. It's all exploitive. So I think clearing that up is the number one focus on an awareness piece because that's so critical. Normalizing it in any form is just actually not okay. It's not acceptable because these are people made in the image of God who should not be coerced or forced into selling any kind of sex, especially for entertainment. Um, And so there's that piece, but also right here in Kentucky, there are active trafficking cases in the court system right now. There are active trafficking investigations right now. In our digital outreach, we've reached out to almost 400 women who are advertised for purchase just within 10 miles of Lexington. So this is a real problem right in our community. And yeah, that's a scary stat. I read that and I'm, I think, oh my gosh, these are people that I have seen, you right. know, walking to and from yeah. class, like who mm-hmm. knows. In the grocery store or but whatever. Yeah. on the actually hopeful side of that, because if this is a problem in our communities, our communities are therefore an integral part of the solution. At Refuge for Women Kentucky, we're really focused on what happens after the rescue. And so another Hollywood thing that people tend to really like to see is that like dramatic rescue. And that's great and wonderful. And we're super into freedom. And something Deanna says a lot that I really, really love is like, we're, it's not enough to just be anti-trafficking. We need to be pro-flourishing. Right. And so Refuge Women really comes in in that flourishing space. 80% of victims end up back on the streets. Is that correct? Yeah. So that's obviously some level of estimation in that statistic. But the recidivism rate for women who've experienced this kind of exploitation is astronomically high because there are so many other things that come along with experiencing this. And so at Refuge for Women, we want to give women a space to heal, to discover hope, and ultimately the hope and the healing and the freedom and the flourishing that comes through Christ, through the work of his spirit. So whether that's through the safety and stabilization of emergency housing, that long deep healing work of a long-term program or the job skills, income skills, just life skills and support system building that comes in our transitional living program, we really just want women to have the chance to imagine what a future looks like after this kind of exploitation. So they don't go back. Yeah. Another stat I read, maybe it was on your all's website someplace, only 12 states have one house offering safety and recovery for victims of this. And 16 states have no housing at all. So you just have to imagine there's 400 cases I think you mentioned right now you know think of that 400 people just in this area and one or no places for them to go I love that refuge kind of takes that next step of yes we're going to help you get out yes that's a good thing but what are the next steps don't become one of the stats to that you know for whatever reason there's many reasons they go back one of the coolest things I think in our 2022 annual report we see a less than 10% rate 
going Mm. back after completing our program. What we're doing works and not because we're amazing or whatever. Like we try really hard with our faith-based trauma-informed programming, but really because we get to see lives transformed through the grace and through the power of Christ Jesus. Well, Deanna, you've walked through that firsthand. Do you want to share a little bit about, um, you know, what that was like and what kind of work that took for you? So you were saying that there's a house in maybe 12 states and 16 states without a house. Well, in 2011, I didn't know of any houses. You know, I went to support recovery meetings. I went to counseling. People helped people maybe with like porn addiction. But I'm like, where do I go to heal after thousands of people for the last 10 years have put their hands on my body and purchased me for whatever their desire was? Where do you go to heal from that? Because I didn't need a psychiatric institution. I already felt ostracized from community. I had some sobriety under my belt. I was able to obtain that through recovery meetings. Refuge for Women literally found me all the way in California. Having been a runner my whole life, I was a little nervous because I'm like, am I just like running away again? Because like wherever I go, there I am. So that's not the solution. I called up the founder and I just said, you know, if this doesn't work, I have nothing left. Like I don't know how to heal from the not only the the immense amount of pain from everything I experienced over the last 10 years and being objectified and having disassociated for so long, but what about the first 18 years that made me feel like, hey, maybe this is my only yeah, option in right. life. Like, I've still got to heal from all of that. And so... Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a huge choice to make. We, there was probably eight of us from eight different states that all found this one house at the time. So it opened in 2009, and there was one house that housed eight of us who really, really wanted a different life. And now I work with national organizations that oversee 250 residential programs. So I'm really grateful for the people who paved the way, who had no idea and no experience with sex trafficking, but they saw a need. So many people wanted us to get out, mm-hmm. but didn't know what to do with us yeah, afterwards. Right. I don't know how to live any other life. So without actual proper discipleship and a sense of belonging, a sense of safety, where I could stay put for long enough to really deal with these things, I really don't know how I would have survived. Well, and I think Refuge, from what I know about other organizations, is what really makes it stand out is the faith component, is the the spiritual component of this. Like, you need God to do a transformative work in your life. You going into that, were you a Christian? Did you you know that you had that need? Yes. So I actually— I was a Christian in the sense that I knew that Jesus died for me too. And that was the only belief I had. And I ran with it. In the darkest of places, I ran with what I knew. What I didn't have was discipleship, belonging, learning how to live into these belief systems when my brain operates out of decades of trauma. And so what Refuge provided for me was a place where I could truly rewire my mind. So for like one year, I just exposed myself to the truth. Because by the time I left, I wanted to be so familiar with the truth that I could detect anything that was counterfeit that came my way again. And so a lot of times we focus on the darkness and the problem. And it's like, for me, I needed to focus on the light. So I actually knew what was going to take away from that light. And so it allowed me a safe place to actually be re-raised and discipled. And so I would say what it did is it allowed me to go from this perception of, yes, I'm forgiven, to actually being free. That was a difference for me. I didn't know that I could be free here in this earth. What was that timeline like for you? And I know the refuge program 
is a year, is a year-long program. So can you just talk about for you, what was your path like and just the timing of that? So my timeline looked like a year-long program. When I went in there, it was a nine-month program. And I said, no, I need four seasons, four yes. whole seasons where nothing traumatic happens to me. They allowed us to, to do the one-year program. Since then, it's gone to like a two-and-a-half-year program. And with these apartments, we now give women up to five years. It's not to say they're going to leave after five years, but, you know, people are going to get married. They're going to start new jobs, stuff like that. It takes a while to figure out who you're going to become. So my process looked like I made sure that I was surrounded by community outside of refuge. So I got plugged into my church, into my recovery meetings. I, I got jobs that I liked, went to seminary, didn't know you could go to school to study the Bible. That was really exciting to me. I had no vocational aspirations except to become a, a better follower of Christ by knowing him better. And for the first three years, I wasn't around anybody but women. So going back to school was like this huge process for me because now all of a sudden I'm talking to guys and I'm like, I I do want to get married. Am I here because I want to get married? Am I here to get a degree? Why am I here? Um, Turns out I got both. So um, (laughs) that's actually my second book is integrating back into society. And so that's why I'm so passionate about the apartments that we've opened up because I know how long it took for me to explore who do I want to become because I don't want to just go from one form of surviving and existing to another. I want women who come through our program to have the time and the safety to really see what things that they're good at because it takes time to try all those things and to learn all those skills. And so to just get a woman a job, that can't be the end goal. We have to help them build a life that they really are excited to show up for. Another statistic that is really eye-opening for me is women with my background, the statistics show that we end up dying by suicide, being in a domestic violence relationship, or by a drug overdose. And I continue to see that. I'm talking 14 years outside of the industry. That is a very real thing for us, where just one day we think, I can't fight this anymore. I have been fighting for too long. It's too great. And so we can't just let the healing process end at the recovery program because who's checking on us five years from now? What are we going through? What new triggers have come up? What new relationships have we started? It's like an alcoholic. I mean, you're not just done. You know, you're like, it's an ongoing journey. Do you know, Anna Lorna, are there any stats about how many women are in fact addicted to substances who are in trafficking situation. I would guess I it's probably most. Yeah, I don't know the exact number, but I would guess if you drew a Venn diagram, yeah. there would be probably a 90% overlap. Yeah. Drugs and trafficking have this really fascinating but also horrifying connection with each other because drugs are such a portal into the trafficking industry but also such a tool to keep victims from going to law enforcement. And so something I'm really passionate about in the policy field, in the legal field, is how do we stop punishing victims for the things they were forced to do to stay alive? How do we actually get people help? You look at this recovery stat and you add the trauma and the triggers that drugs can be and you start to see kind of how much of a vicious cycle this can be. But just one of the verses that I feel like the Lord has kept speaking over this is just like Revelation 21, 5. Behold, I'm making all things new. And I think something that has kind of had to switch for me in the year that I've been working with refuge is like, okay, I don't want just something to be different. This is newness. This is like the walking in the newness of life that Christ promised. It's also like, okay, here's abundance of life. Here is like this awful, horrifying, exploitive manner of life. Let's 
actually allow Christ the space and the time and like the community of believers around each of these women to where there's a newness of life aspect, to where they're getting to live into a vision of the future that maybe other people had to start out imagining for them, but now they're grasping and now they're seeing. I come back to that phrase all the time, like behold, I am making all things new. It's just been incredible to like read the statistics and then realize that like the women I get to interact with every day, they're not in them. And I, I love, love that realization. You know, Anna Lauren, when you were here at Asbury still as a student, you talked about some of the work that you did in places all around the world and talked about going into the legal field so you could impact change from a policy standpoint. Do you have something in mind that you're hoping to do in the future once you get that degree? I'm actually so grateful for this time with Refuge for Women because it's really kind of steadied my soul into a vision, kind of what I feel like I was really made for, made to inhabit. Well, I think I would love the like fun of getting to be in a courtroom all the time. Um, I actually am becoming really passionate about this public policy space, not in like the lobbying or legislature space so much as like being a liaison between organizations like Refuge or Safe House Project and really just like being able to see the gaps in the policy and the research on the legal side, but then also like what are those gaps causing as outcomes? And so if we can't get access to low-income housing because like God forbid they go get a job, how do we address those policy gaps that are actually being lived out that are affecting people instead of trying to make sure that we tighten up our legal language around one clause over here? So really just like blending that policy and practicality. So getting back to January is Human Trafficking Prevention Month. And I love that even just that we're talking about this, that refuge exists, that this month exists, that we can have these conversations about, you know, pornography feeding this, about drugs, all these things. It's, it's all out in the open, which it's great. You know, expose it with the light. That's, that's what we need to do. So what little things can people do to raise awareness and provide healing, you know, for these women? Obviously, they can donate to refuge. You know, what are some other things, if we're talking about awareness and prevention, that just the normal person can do? It is expensive to do this work. So donating to refuge is always huge. We are very, very grateful. Our webpage is refugewomen.org backslash Kentucky. But then also getting involved, seeing the stories through volunteering. So we're actually having a volunteer training right here at Asbury on the 27th of January. Anything like that, you can check out the link to register on our social media pages. That's huge with refuge. But then in just like the broader problem, taking Hollywood with a grain of salt, really reading the stats that are coming out, there's an annual trafficking in persons report that the State Department puts out. There's annual reports from organizations like Refuge. There are organizations in Lexington that are saying, hey, even with our attorney general's office, that are like, here's what we're actually doing. There's huge initiatives in Kentucky right now to shut down illicit massage parlors, which is just a way that people don't think trafficking happens. Um, And so really just becoming informed, but then something as simple as putting the human trafficking hotline number in your phone. The number is 888-373-7888. So really easy to remember. Yeah. It's like that see something, say something thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so like if something looks off, Mm -hmm. it probably is. Yeah. And so that doesn't mean call the hotline every time you're in like a grocery (laughs) store. But it also means, you know, if you're in a public space, watch out. Yeah, I think just Take time be aware to look of around your, you. Yeah, get out of your phone and just be aware of your surroundings. I mean, if yeah. there's fellow humans around you. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, you see so many people walking through airports mm-hmm. or through train stations or mm-hmm. bus stations or subway stations or whatever. Just like completely like headphones in, music blaring, looking at their phone, totally checked out. And that's what allows people to move in these spaces undetected. Or just people are like, oh, well, you know, I guess it's not really my place. Right. Like, like no, we, Deanna's shaking her head. 
no, <laughs> it is your place. Yes. Yeah, like we, especially as the body of Christ, right? right? Like these are the people who Christ would reach out to. Mm. And so as the body of Christ is his hands and feet, we are obligated, actually. I think it's part of the scriptural mandate. It's part of the mission of God and the heart of God for his people to see restoration mm. and to see lives restored and people free. It's as simple as seeing something and saying something, but also trainings like I Am On Watch, Sheltered Online, and all of these things. They're like online training models that take an hour just to recognize the signs. Have you had people come to Refuge who have been in that situation where someone did help them get out and then they came to your program, Deanna? Yes. So a lot of times we work with law enforcement, and that's actually how we realized the need for an emergency house, because at that time we were only able to serve people who were already detoxed. Right. And so law enforcement would go in, they'd, they'd get a girl out of a situation, they'd come to our house, like immediately, sometimes mm. they'd sleep on the floor, wow. and we just start the healing process right there. And so that's why we need to open more emergency homes, which is what we're working on in Louisville this year, is having a, another emergency home for Refuge for Women in Louisville. Just be on watch. Like, I was an 18-year-old girl, tiny little blonde thing in a motel, and a different person would bang on my door every half an hour while my pimp sat outside in his car with a gun. Now, I'm not saying go walk up to the car, but what I am wondering is why nobody, nobody called my phone and and asked, are you okay in there? And he probably had an arrangement with the person or whatever. Even being able to text be free to the number that you can text, and they will always go and at least search the situation. Not Mm. one person checked on me. When I'm walking around in airports and I have older, bigger men who are carrying my right. bags for me throughout you. the airport, like not one person wonders why this is happening. This happened flat out in restaurants. My producers would have me do stuff. Once my pimp had groomed me to go into the porn industry, then the producers are now taking over the same actions and they would have you do stuff in public places to be able to get certain roles. And you had to act like you were all game for everything or else you didn't get work. Not one person in the restaurant was like, hmm, this seems a little why off. is this? <laughs> 18-year-old girl doing that with this Mm, 50-year-old Irish-Italian man at the bar. Nobody said anything in 10 years that I was in the sex industry. I just thought that's the whole, how the whole world operated. Some of us weren't addicted to drugs. I Mm. certainly was. But there's a lot of people that just the fear and intimidation factor is enough to keep them stuck. There's a brainwashing factor to it. Huge, huge. I was told I was helping marriages. I was brought to other countries and said, it's legal and it's hot to go after youths. And luckily, I escaped that, but not everybody did. And so... Yeah, there's just a lot to be uncovered. There's such a misconception that you're supposed to be able to spot some kind of glance. No, this is not happening in like these shadows that like good, decent people don't go to. Like this is happening in restaurants. It's happening in public places. And it's happening in like obvious manners that if you've done a one hour training, you could be like, hmm, I recall something about this. (laughs) It's not... It's not difficult, actually, to spot once you know the signs in a lot of cases. I would even say just reading my books because, like, I wrote those so people would be informed. Everybody's like, oh, there's ethical porn and all this stuff. Like, I have been removed from the porn industry since 2010. They're still selling my image. People are still using my body. I have no rights because of the decisions I made as a very hurting, running-from-the-law, drug-addicted teenager. Just reading the book allows you to understand. What's the 
book called? So the first book is called Purchased, Leaving the Sex Trade. And that just shows people the process that it took for me to finally say yes to becoming free. Because everybody's like, why don't they just get out? And it's like, it's, yeah. it's more complicated. And these are on the Refuge website. They're on Amazon. And the second one is Integrated, Living Beyond the Sex Trade. And that's just kind of understanding what it looks like to have a normal life when you've got your newfound belief systems, but yet you have, you know, 28 years of trauma behind you. Like, how do you integrate all of those parts of yourself back okay. together? And Anna Lauren, is there anything that you want to add in closing? As much as I have learned so much about the character and the heart of God from getting to work with the women that we serve, I've learned probably more by just asking the question, and that started here at Asbury, like, what does obedience look like today? And it led me to some pretty crazy places. It led me to say no to a lot of things to be able to say these kind of yeses now. I think a lot of times I get a lot of comments that are like, oh, you're so young. You're 23. How on earth are you doing all of this? And the answer in entirety is the grace of God in my life, but also that grace being shown to me by the community I developed here at Asbury, but also just having people who would call out giftings in me I didn't see in myself. And now getting to be able to sit in that seat for someone else and say like, no, hey, like I see promise in you. I see a future for you the same way that people did for me. It's such a joy to have the seat in someone else's life to hopefully be able to speak into them some kind of the level to the way that people here at Asbury. Well, thank you, ladies. It was so wonderful to have you both here. We'll definitely be checking out these books and everything on the website and the training. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of This is Asbury. To learn more about Asbury University, visit asbury.edu. 